Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, Lexington, the extraordinary life and turbulent times of America's legendary racehorse. Our storyteller is Kim Wickens of Georgetown, Kentucky, who grew up in Texas, gave up a life as a criminal defense attorney in New Mexico, and moved to Kentucky to be near horses and fell in love with the exciting true story of Lexington. Our conversation was recorded before an audience at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green. Thank you, Courtney, and uh, welcome to all of you, and uh, welcome to our our special guest. You realize that uh, Kim could have uh, maybe done this book launch in uh, New York, maybe in Saratoga. She's from Dallas, Texas. She could have been in Texas tonight. Uh, Maybe Churchill Downs in Louisville? but she chose to be in Lexington, Kentucky at Joseph Beth Booksellers for the launch of Lexington. So we're so glad that you are with us tonight, Kim. And we're so anxious to hear so much about the book. It's not one of those uh, typical launches where we've read the book or I've read the book. I was lucky enough that someone sent me a PDF Uh, and I was able to uh, read and listen to some of it and get an idea about uh, what uh, wonderful writing and research that uh, Kim has done on this book. Um, So we're going to try our best to tell as many stories uh, as we can and let her uh, tell you about uh, some of the characters that she writes about and certainly uh, the horse, uh, the uh, people who raised uh, Lexington, and a little bit about the atmosphere. And that's where I'd like to start, uh, Kim is uh, before we get into when uh, Lexington was born, uh, would you set the uh, historical stage for us? Uh, What was racing like in America at a time uh, of the period that you're writing in? What was, uh, how prominent was it? Who was racing? And um, what was racing in Kentucky like? Okay, well, first of all, let me just thank everyone for being here and uh, giving your time today and and coming to hear uh, this presentation on Lexington. And it's really important that you support your local bookstores and so I'm so proud uh, to be here and that all of you are here supporting that. And it's it's actual people, unlike the AIs that uh, can do some crazy things on some of these other websites and and put a book uh, next to, I don't know, some guy on a calendar with his shirt off, you know, with a six pack and you're thinking why is Lexington book sitting next to that book and then you think maybe the common word there is stud. I don't know. (laughs) But regardless, you're here where it's run by real people who are actually making decisions about what's going on. So thank you. Um, Lexington, uh, as many of you may know from reading Geraldine Brooks's book, uh, the fantastic book on uh, Lexington called Horse, uh, is a book and a horse that uh, ran in the 19th century. And so Lexington was the antebellum era. He was pre-Civil War when he was racing. 
and then of course then becomes a sire here in Midway, Kentucky at the famous Woodford Farm and that occurs a little bit before the Civil War, through the Civil War, and then after the Civil War. And the landscape of racing back then in the 19th century was, I mean, th this was the sport for America. There was some, there, hi, <laughs> there was uh, a little bit of, of prize fighting and boxing going on at that point, but this was really the sport that Americans were drawn to. And, and in a place like New Orleans, which is where Lexington did his races, with the exception of his initial races here in Lexington, Kentucky, um, these race, horse racing was so popular that a city could support and did support as many as three race courses. I mean, it was quite phenomenal that they, there was that much interest in, in the sport. And Kim, you talk everybody. about uh, a term that um, I was not familiar with, and I don't remember reading about it in uh, Geraldine Brooks's uh, book, and that is you use the term bottom. Could you bottom. describe bottom for us? Bottom, and, and this was when I was doing my research, I kept running across this term, bottom, bottom, bottom. And essentially what bottom is, is in, in some ways it's indefinable. I mean, it's, it's what makes the horse phenomenal or special. It's, it's the courage that's, that the horse has, the stamina, the drive. Um, it's, it's something within the horse's soul that allows that horse to achieve what others can. And so they always were looking for a horse that had bottom. So in other words, how much could that horse give before he hit his bottom? And they wanted a horse that had that kind of power and drive that could really go the distance, so to speak. And, and we were not just talking about furlong races, you know, back then, this was heat racing. And so these horses were running uh, anywhere from, if it was a one mile heat, all the way up to a four mile heat, a four mile heat being the upper echelon of racing, the, um, what we would call a grade one stakes race today, it was, it was the very top and not every horse could compete at a four mile heat. And so you really wanted a four mile horse and in order to have a four mile horse, that horse had to have bottom. And this was a concept that was really understood by everyone in the 19th century. It was, it was applied to, to so many things. I mean, when, when Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick, I can guarantee you that he knew about bottom. And he wrote Moby Dick and published it before Lexington but I guarantee you that he knew about his sire Boston, who was the epitome of bottom, because in Moby Dick, he has Captain Ahab requesting from his blacksmith on the ship to make a harpoon so he can spear the well. And he throws at him this, this bag of nails, and he says, look ye blacksmith, these are the nail studs of the still shoes of racing horses. And then he goes on to explain that he wanted something so strong that was embedded with the blood and lightning of racehorses. And so, I mean, even this concept of bottom and strength and drive from these thoroughbred racehorses was, was really well known and, and so forth and people didn't- I also it. found it really uh, interesting and, and uh, somewhat intriguing, uh, the role of the groomsman, which has always been important in horse racing behind the scenes 
But they, uh, in that era, uh, the middle part of the 19th century and earlier, really played an important part uh, after the horse had raced these long distances. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, the wrapping that went on and, and why that occurred. Yeah, the, a lot of this, you know, and this is described in the book, but a lot of this was, um, first of all, the people that were working on the horses, a lot of them were enslaved. And so you have a lot of the enslaved people that uh, grew up working with the horses on the plantations and being around the horses and then learning the skills and what it was necessary to basically bring a horse around after a severe race, you know, a one mile heat race or a four mile heat race. And so there, there was quite a bit of, of looking after the horse and doctoring the horse and uh, feeding it very small amounts of food. They, they were under the observation of these horses for 24 hours or so right after a race and they were wrapping the legs and, and soaking the legs in hot water and things of this nature to try to make sure that there was not any injury to the horse after the race and uh, feeding very small amounts of food, very small increments of water that were being brought in uh, at 15 minute increments and 30, 30 minute increments and, and then building it back up to the point that the horse could then eventually come it, back out and walk. I mean, everything at that in that era was done very slowly and the horses were often blanketed in heavy flannel. And in their mind, they were trying to promote the circulation of the horse by sweating you know, the horse out. And, and so uh, a workout for a horse in preparation when they were first starting to, to race was, was really um, uh, done very slowly in walking the horse for two hours in the morning and that's it. And then putting the horse away and then walking the horse for two hours in the afternoon. So four hours of walking with these heavy flannel blankets on. And then eventually the other gates were slowly added in. Um, very rarely did a horse ever uh, run four miles in preparation for a race, but Lexington did in order to prepare him for some of these extraordinary uh, feats that he accomplished. We all know that this is, uh, there's lime and limestone uh, in, our, in our land here in Kentucky. And, uh, they also used a combination of, of bourbon uh, and water. Yeah. And I don't know, I have no idea if that's being used today or not. Uh, I <laughs> sort of doubt it. Uh, it's used for other uh, cures, uh, but not for the horse. But they, there was a combination of, of bourbon uh, that they used with water to wipe down the horse after a race? Yes, I mean, it was medicinal. And so they would, um, uh, in between the heat, so after a horse would run a four-mile heat, they would bring the horses in for a 45-minute cooling period. <laughs> and during this cooling period, uh, all of the grooms would just swarm upon the horse. It's kind of like the Indy 500, if you can imagine all these you know, people assuming, you know, gathering around the car and getting it ready to go out again. And um, they were whisking the horse dry. They were um, walking him and rubbing down the muscles and trying to bring the horse back to life. And so they were essentially rubbing alcohol, you know, all over the horse to try to soothe the muscles out, allowing the horse to drink water that was mixed with some wine or some bourbon, you know, very I small. Can, uh, I've, I've got many friends who would say what a terrible waste uh, <laughs> that was. And then they would take that same thing over to the jockey who was struggling to recover as That's well and let the jockey drink the same. Yeah, so, yeah. well. Uh, 
Kim, you do uh, such a wonderful job of telling so many interesting stories. Uh, uh, the, the characterization of, of some of the, um, the figures that were so prominent in racing at that time, and we don't have uh, time to go into all of those, but I want you to give us a biography of some of those. And let's start with, uh, with Richard Tin uh, Brook, Brook um, and, and his prominence and how he plays such a, an important role in, uh, in Lexington. Richard Tin Brook uh, is a very interesting character. He is one of my favorite people to write about in the book because he's, he's very complex and he's not perfect. And I love that about him. And um, he um, did some questionable things at times. I mean, he was asked to leave West Point or kicked out of West Point. We're not really sure, but there was some nefarious thing, you know, that went on there that uh, prompted uh, him leaving West Point. Um, he becomes a riverboat gambler and then finds himself uh, on the racetrack at some point and uh, learns from a very prominent man called uh, William Johnson or Old Nap Johnson. He learns how to um, uh, basically promote a racehorse. And Old Nap Johnson was the man who was promoting Boston in all 45 of Boston's races. And he learned from that and then uh, at some point became interested in owning race courses and was what you would call a proprietor of a race uh, course, which was basically a manager of a race course. He would come in and manage and operate the race courses for the jockey clubs. And he, he set his eyes on the Metairie race course in New Orleans and eventually took over the Metairie and was trying to bring in people to that course and to New Orleans. And so he conceives of this race called the Great State Postakes. And it's a race that is supposed to, to pit different states against each other and to showcase the best horse from that state. And so with that in mind, he leaves New Orleans, he goes to Kentucky because he cannot get Kentucky to agree to participate in this race. He's got Mississippi, he's got Alabama. He, he cannot get Kentucky and he needs Kentucky to participate. And so he goes to Kentucky to look for his horse. And that's when he finds Lexington, who at the point was not named Lexington, he um, was named Darby. We're going to, and that's another part of the story, uh, and if people caught that, it was Darley in, in Kentucky, and he changed the name. Did he change it? He changed it. He changed the name to because Lexington, he was such named a after great, the city. He was such a great promoter, and, and you know, he, he just had so much awareness about what it needed to, uh, to add some kind of drama to the whole race. And so he knew that this horse that was going to be representing Kentucky could not be representing Kentucky under the name Darley. It had to have a spectacular name. Going to ask uh, Kim to read in just a minute from um, from the the race of these four states um, and how important that was and and how um, exciting uh, that passage in the in the book is. But I want to ask you about two more people first. Uh, Doctor Elijah Warfield mm -hmm. is one, and then the trainer Harry Lewis, uh, who we may be familiar with, but uh, it was such a uh, a well-known figure back then and uh, quite quite different from some of the other enslaved that you spoke of uh, earlier. So Dr. Warfield and, and Harry Lewis. 
Dr. Warfield was the breeder of Lexington, as I'm sure many of you know. And um, he uh, bred uh, his mare, Alice Carnell, who he loved very much and believed her to be a very spectacular racehorse. She never was. She was very cantankerous. She, she was basically thrown off of the race courses everywhere she went. She won one race and eventually had to be retired because she was so difficult to handle and, and um, refused to race, essentially. And so uh, he bred this Alice Carnell uh, to Boston, the phenomenal racehorse Boston. And the byproduct of that was Darling, who then becomes Lexington. And so Dr. Warfield is, is a pretty old guy at this point in his life when he uh, breeds this, this horse, who is already quite a phenomenal horse and build, and you can see that by the build of the horse that this is gonna be some racehorse. And um, his wife essentially has ruled him off of the course for his own benefit, for his health. He needs to just relax and, and, and not be all riled up by this race course activity and race horse activity. And so he then, um, we're not sure if he's either contacted by Harry Lewis or if he contacts Harry Lewis, but Harry Lewis was a freed black man at that point. Um, who had been involved in training some pretty great racehorses in, in Kentucky, Gray Eagle and uh, Richard Singleton. And um, with his success there, he was well known within the Lexington and Kentucky area as a great racehorse trainer. And so Harry Lewis assumes the initial training of Darley and uh, runs him in his first two races here in Lexington. Did Harry Lewis uh, follow Lexington to New Orleans, uh, no. to Metairie? He did not go with him no. uh, during that training period? No. Who, who, under whose uh, guide was he uh, in New Orleans? W was there just another trainer? Yes, yeah, so when um, Richard Timbrook takes ownership of Lexington, it names him Lexington, he's uh, shipped down to Natchez. And there he undergoes his initial training in Natchez. And it's, in, it's at that point that he is turned over to the hands of J.B. Pryor, hmm. who is a racehorse trainer there in, you know, in the Natchez uh, area in New Orleans, and was also a very good friend of Richard Tinbrook. And that's the man that took on Lexington's training from that point on, throughout the remainder of his races. Well, one of the more chilling episodes, uh, I think, um, is the transport of all the horses uh, from point A to point B. In Lexington's case, as well as other horses that were going to New Orleans, uh, it was aboard steamboat. And the depiction that you uh, write of and the research that you've done to discover how all that was happening, uh, chilling I say because it was, uh, it was frightening. And I'm sure there were a lot of injuries uh, so tell us, uh, give us a description of, of the, the ordeal at that time that uh, one um, had to go through to get the horse on board and, and what happened once they were there, how long the trip was. So a trip from uh, Louisville uh, to New Orleans uh, could take about 14 days. And these horses, and this was one of my favorite parts of doing the research was to find out how these things were done in the 19th century. And they really were 
treacherous. I mean, the traveling back then was just, I cannot even believe that people would, would even risk it because there were so many fatalities that, that happened on the Mississippi with the steamboats and, and uh, just carelessness and recklessness and negligence of, of the steamboat operators and you name it. I mean, just, you know, steamboats catching on fire and yeah. burning up right there on the river and, and just a tremendous amount of, of destruction and damage uh, and loss of human life and animal life that was occurring, um, you know, in basic travel from here to there. But travel obviously had to occur and it occurred regularly. And when they came to shipping horses on the Mississippi, you know, I mean, it, it's, think about how you're gonna get this horse on, onto a steamboat. And so uh, in some cases they were walked on a gangplank with their eyes, you know, blindfolded and so forth and led, uh, you know, so that they could be transported, you know, onto the boat, but this was not always a safe method. And so a lot of times they would attach a sling and this was kind of a difficult process it's been described you know it's a very dangerous process in many many circumstances because the horses were not taking to this at all um, and especially those that had had this happen in the past knew what was coming and they were they were not going to have any of it and so they would attach the sling uh, on the horse and if you've been to the international museum of the horse you may have seen this demonstration where they have uh, this horse in a sling that's being lifted off of the ground mm. onto uh, the boat. And, and so a lot of times that was how that was done. And then these animals were, you know, put in very tight uh, conditions in, in such a way that they really were not allowed. I mean, you're talking about a 14 day travel where the horse seldom is taken out of the stall or sell, you know, not walked around, not exercised. Um, in order to allow it to have some kind of, of relief from having to stand there on its limbs for all 14 days, they would apply sometimes a sling if they could within the stall to allow the horse to rest into the sling a little bit. But this, this was not always uh, yeah. something that was taken too warmly by the horse either. And so it really was uh, a process that was very demanding on the animal and Sometimes uh, the animals did not make it. Sometimes they were lamed by travel. And so when a horse finally did uh, make it to its destination, again, all this great care to make sure that the animal uh, would come out of that safely. And it took some days before the animal could be put into work. Was it Lexington or another horse that fell overboard? Uh, that was Boston. But was it Boston that... <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you, yes. you mentioned that. Um, yes. uh, of course, not not. It was at dock, and they were loading. Correct. Yes. yes. So. And he went into the water. He did. He backed himself overboard, because he was so frightened. Of, you know, once he made it onto the boat, and he could feel the boat, you know, not very sturdy underneath him, and so, out of panic, the horse yeah. backed himself overboard. And yeah. you can only imagine, you know, the all of the Hail Marys and everything that were probably said, you know, in the process of getting that yeah. horse back on board, but they did. And he, uh, he went to, I think it was somewhere in Virginia and won, won his race, but yeah. We'll have more with Kim Wickens after this word from Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention 
in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. I'm talking with Kim Wickens at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington, Kentucky, about her new book, Lexington, a legendary racehorse who captured the world of thoroughbred racing in the mid-19th century. This conversation was recorded at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green. Well, uh, we uh, said something about uh, reading just a short passage from uh, the race of the, uh, of the representatives of the four states, the four state race. Can you kind of set that up and then um, give us a, an idea of, of some of your research and, and some of your writing? Yeah, so, so the research that I did was pretty spread out over many, many years. And a lot of it was um, at Keeneland. And of course, I was not living in Kentucky at the time. I was living in New Mexico. And so I was taking my vacations. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. And I was taking my vacations uh, from practicing law and coming to Keeneland and uh, doing research at Keeneland uh, for weeks at a time. And then uh, going back, or my research also took me, of course, I mean, quite a, quite a few places in Kentucky, not just Keeneland, but uh, Frankfort, obviously, Kentucky's Historical Society, uh, the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, um, the several uh, county archives, uh, Simpson County archives in Franklin, when I was doing a lot of research on Sue Mundy, the very colorful character. We've got to get to Sue, Sue Mundy, Mundy before we before um, we end, so we'll we'll return to that in a moment. That's a little tease. Yeah, and then of course, uh, of course, going to New York, to West Point, and uh, to New Orleans, to Virginia at the National Sporting Museum there. I mean, so the re and then and then of course in in just contacting various histor historical societies and in doing uh, the research for William Quintrell, who was one of the raiders at Woodburn Farm. Uh, contacting Kansas Historical Society, getting all of the eyewitness documents they had of all these horrible raids that William Contrell had done in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and, and so forth. And so, it, I mean, it was a lot of unearthing of documents, a lot of times in archives, and I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was the most fascinating thing ever. And, and it was so great to me to actually look at the documents that existed then. You know, I, I didn't want to really look at I wanted to look at the, the first-hand sources and not rely on what other people may have said because I wanted to form my own interpretations and not rely on someone else's interpretation of something. And it was just great to hold those old newspapers that, I mean, they're humongous, the spirit of the times. I mean, these things are gigantic. And so you're, you're just thumbing through these rag pages and, and you know, looking at all of the, the history of that era and the fashion and the, the theater and, and uh, the billiards and how much things cost and how much a mule would cost or, you know, uh, I don't know, anything. And, and it was just so fascinating to me. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And then, of course, at the Kentucky Historical Society, which houses the Alexander 
uh, family papers, going through those documents and looking at the letters between Alexander and Richard Tinbrook. And, and uh, Richard Tinbrook, when he retires Lexington from racing, he's not a breeding guy. He then goes off to England where he's gonna then race. And so at that point he meets uh, Mr. Alexander of uh, Midway, Kentucky, who is at that point starting his fabulous Woodburn farm, which is a breeding farm. And he has such a grand plan for this because this was really, really the, the start of modern day breeding of what we know today. And it was started by uh, Robert Itchison Alexander at Woodburn Farm with Lexington at the head. And so he meets Richard Tinbrook in England and says, by the way, this horse Lexington that you've retired, is he for sale? And, and Richard Tinbrook, being the guy that he is, he says, well, you know, I wasn't really looking to sell him. I mean, he's a, a celebrity horse and he's so valuable that I don't think anyone can afford this horse. And he just throws this fantastic number out there, which was $15,000, which back then, no one had ever paid that amount for a horse. And so here you are asking $15,000 for an unproven sire, because even though he had sired some colts, we had no idea at that point whether they were gonna be successful runners or not. And so you had no idea. And he's a, and he's a blind horse at this point. So you have a blind horse, you know, that, that um, you're asking $15,000 for, and you don't know whether it can produce any runners or not. And, Eventually, Alexander buys the horse, and what a great decision that was. <laughs> okay, you've led us into something else there. Before we get to the reading, before we get to Sue Mundy, uh, the blind horse. Uh, many people know Lexington was blind in one eye, if not totally blind by the time he is of his death. Why? Unfortunately, that was by oversight. And so um, when he is brought to Natchez, he um, is um, put in his stall one evening and, and the latch is not fastened. And he escapes out of his stall during the night and binges essentially on a keg of corn. You know, I mean, these kegs were gigantic. And how, how much corn was actually in the keg, uh, we're not certain, but it must have been quite a bit. And um, so he gorges on this corn when the Grooms come to see him in the morning. He's in his stall, but the door is wide open. It just so happens that at this point, J.B. Pryor comes with another prominent turfman who was there to see Lexington run. And so nothing was said about the corn binging, but Lexington was saddled. He was taken out to the track and he was uh, made to run without any awareness that he had just binged on corn the night before. And so it was, he didn't run very well. And they put him away and it was at that point that he's, he really almost died, you know, as a result of, of all of this. And What's um, the disease called? It's ERU, equine recurrent uvitis. And so that's the name, when I, when I was trying to find out, well, what, what caused this blindness? You know, I contacted Dr. Claire Latimer uh, with Rudin Riddle here, and she's an equine ophthalmologist. And I asked her and, and told her a little bit about what we knew. And she says, it is very likely that if a horse um, gorges on something uh, as rich as corn and then is given a workout the next day, it could cause a toxin you know, to release in the bloodstream. And in this case, affected the eye of uh, Lexington 
and eventually led to what we would call equine recurrent uvitis, which is a reoccurring uh, inflammation of the eyes. And it, it eventually consumes both eyes, and eventually that's, it, mm. takes them, it takes over, and that's why he's retired from racing. Yeah. Well, we are, want to be mindful of, of your time and your conversation that you might want to have with Kim and uh, purchase her book. Um, there are a couple other things that I think are important, uh, and we're going to, again, ask her to read that short passage. But how many of you are familiar with the, the Sue Mundy story in, in Kentucky? Not, not, you know, it's just, it's funny, uh, Kim and I talked on the phone uh, yesterday, and uh, our Kentucky Book Festival director, uh, Katarina Stojkova, is here. And the very uh, noted uh, Port Laureate, former Port Laureate and writer Richard Taylor uh, came to our office yesterday to see Katarina. And Richard, uh, one of his uh, previous books, uh, was on the character of Sue Mundy. And he has written a, an entire uh, narrative uh, and verse uh, about this character. And then it was surprising to me before I knew Richard was coming to the office, that that Kim also uh, really devotes a whole chapter uh, just about to her. He's in it quite a bit, yeah. And and so I want to, you to to tell us the story of Sue Monday, and then we'll do some reading, and then we'll see if we can't uh, take some questions and okay. sign some books and things. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so Sue Monday is really Marcellus Jerome Clark, who was this kid essentially. He was you know 19 year old at the time and um, was this androgynous looking guy and uh, had fought with uh, John Hunt Morgan in the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry. And when John Hunt Morgan is, is killed in Tennessee, then Marcellus Clark ends up back in Kentucky, which is where he's from, forms his own guerrilla band. And I'm just giving you very briefly, forms his own guerrilla band and is, is going around either operating as a, a Confederate spy and also looting and, and doing things for his own self gain at that point as well, including stealing of racehorses and stealing of horses. And there's one occasion where he's involved in a stagecoach robbery and the, the eyewitnesses to the stagecoach robbery are describing this, this person that has this long, beautiful, flowing brown curly hair and beautiful face and very slim uh, figure. And George Prentice, who was the editor of the Louisville Daily Journal, gets a hold of this information and decides that he can turn this into great use. Because at that point, he was trying to get President Lincoln to change the Union Guard in Kentucky because he was very unsatisfied with how the general at the time was, was dealing with Kentucky and very harshly. And so he decides that what he's going to do is to create this fictional Sue Mundy, which is a, a woman gorilla outlaw who is going around causing all of this havoc throughout Kentucky. And he's doing it using a woman. This is the 19th century, okay? Using a woman to embarrass the union so that it will bring attention to President Lincoln so that he will change the way things are done in Kentucky. And so he uses the, this Marcellus Clark and his beautiful features and assigns 
him the name of Sue Mundy and claims that this is not a man, but it's actually a woman that's running around doing all of these horrible deeds. And so Marcellus Jerome Clark, there's, there's some things about him where, I mean, this guy, he could, he could pull it off and he would go and drag, all right? And, and he would infiltrate the, the union and gather intelligence dressed as a woman. And, and there's a lot of statements from people that knew him that they really had to question, was he a man or was he a woman? They, I mean, he was so convincing. And so he really fed himself into this Sue Mundy and went along with it and would encourage people to call him Sue Mundy. He so attempted to, uh, to steal Lexington? He quite but possibly didn't. was involved in, there were three raids, three guerrilla raids on Woodburn Farm. And he was involved in at least two, if not the third one as well. You can't make this stuff up, folks. This is a nonfiction book, so you have to believe <laughs> every word. Um, could you read the passage that we sure. talked about? Um, okay, so this is, we'll try to make this very brief. This is the passage that, um, this is leading, this is when everyone is so excited to go to the great state. And, and this, these races, they just drew the, the multitudes. And so people, from everywhere were coming in to New Orleans for this race and and as you can imagine it was kind of like like a race course itself just getting to the race course and so this this is a passage that kind of describes this very briefly this um, this scene that is leading up to the race course by April 1st, the day of the great state, some 20,000 people, all with the goal of witnessing what the Picayune labeled the most celebrated event in the annals of turf history, had taken up temporary residence in the city. All of them purchased their grandstand tickets, which on this day were double the normal price. Those in the members section basked in the knowledge that they would dine on eggs of thinly sliced meats and indulge in bottomless glasses of champagne. People filled the parlors and halls of every hotel and establishment with laughter and talk. Of the Kentucky women at the St. Charles, Ripley wrote how they talked in that soft Southern accent, so peculiarly their own, how they laughed, how they moved about seemingly knowing everybody they met, how they bet. Despite the previous days of rain and wind, the day of the great state was beautiful and warm. The mayor of New Orleans declared it a half holiday. That morning, all the avenues leading out of the city were clogged with every means of transportation imaginable. Wooden carts and drays loaded with people and hauled by mules wheeled slowly alongside, alongside grand carriages of polished mahogany with red velvet seats and gold-colored spokes. Gloved passengers opened picnic baskets filled with southern-style arrays of baked ham, chicken, brandy, beer, and of course cigars. Sporty, bright yellow curricles, two-seaters, zipped between uh, larger carriages leaving trails of dust and squeezing out riders on horseback. A nine-passenger stagecoach owned by the St. Charles rode through, carrying far more than the allotted number, spiking the air with a party fever pitch. The whole of the morning was an exodus of sorts, a divestment of the city of nearly a fifth of its population, all of whom were trying to make it out to the Metairie, the promised land. There was only one problem. The same rain and windstorm that had ripped the chimneys off the New Orleans packet steamer had turned the Metairie's track into a mud pit. Worse, as the wind swept across the track, the dirt had stiffened into a clingy, glue-like consistency. Mud, eight inches in depth, congealed at the top of the track. The Picayune called it tenacious, as if the mud had a mind on its own. 
And though Lexington was a mutter, betters doubted he could prevail in his first attempt at four-mile heats. In the spirit, one man predicted, I do not think Lexington has enough foot for these flyers. His questionable speed wasn't the only issue the gambling crowd considered before parting with their hard-earned cash. Thanks to the Picayune's write-up about the Sally Waters match, the reading public was now aware that Tinbrook's horse had questionable vision. Those who had visited the horse tucked away in the Metairie stall had seen the opaqueness, the untracking gaze hauntingly absent of life, as if a part of his soul had vanished. The only glimmer of Lexington's spirit may have been the abrupt turn of his head toward a noise, his incessant pawing at the ground, or his nose nudging their shoulders as if to say, what do you see? Whatever physical power the stallion might have, his felling vision could upend any chance of his winning. But a stellar victory over the highly acclaimed Sally Waters, when he had run nearly blind, gave better some assurance. Some of them took the risk. In the odds, Lexington trailed second to Alabama's Highlander. By two o'clock, the Metairie's grandstand overflowed its capacity with white, Crayle and black faces, everyone sitting elbow to elbow, an astonishing scene in America only seven years away from civil war. President Fillmore labored up into the judge's stand, waved to the grandstand behind him and sat down in his reserved seat, one of the best in the house for unobstructed racetrack viewing. Those without tickets climbed oak trees or sat on fences, hedges, carriage tops, or any other high point on that bayou that promised a view of the race. At a quarter after two, the four horses draped in silk blankets walked onto the track prompting a shattering chorus of cheers. Lexington, wildly excited, pranced alongside his groom, who held him tightly. Never before had he appeared in, so many, in front of so many people. The rowdy excitement in the stands had also taken hold of the infield crowd, causing shrieks and whistles to circle the horse as if he were swirling inside a cyclone of pandemonium. He jerked his head this, this way, now that, to discern what his right eye could not see. That's beautiful. Uh, a couple of um, a final uh, a thought and, and uh, then a final question. I want to remind everyone that uh, our Kentucky Book Festival is scheduled for October the 21st right here at Joseph Beth. I hope you'll mark your calendars and come back for um, 150 authors and a lot of folks and uh, some very uh, well-known authors as well as uh, many, many great uh, regional and Kentucky authors. Uh, a children's tent, uh, children's activities. Uh, it all happens on October the 21st uh, here at Joseph Beth. And uh, Kim will be here, um, and we're uh, so pleased to have her and, and so many other uh, writers and authors and, and small publishers uh, who celebrate uh, literacy and celebrate reading and, and the, the word, the written word uh, in Kentucky and uh, this rich literary tradition that we all celebrate. So my final question, um, and then we, if we would like uh, to take some questions from the audience uh, before Kim uh, starts to do her signing, is uh, just tell us how um, a lady from Texas who uh, grew up there and um, trained as a criminal defense lawyer and decided uh, that she liked horses, so she came to Kentucky to work on dressage and got an inkling of maybe there was a story here and I don't know if we've mentioned the date she started working on this book in 2012 figure that up that's a long time ago and put together what you see over there just look Kim look over there look <laughs> that's your book yeah that's it it's stacked up right there so what does that feel like and tell us what uh, this 
these last uh, many years uh, have meant to you and, and now to, to come to this launch party uh, and, and have this and put this in your hands? Well, I mean, it's a great, it's a great feeling. I mean, I didn't start out to write a book, right? And so I, I love racehorses and read a lot about racehorses and I was reading about the great racehorse man of war. And in the book that I was reading, they compared him saying he was the racehorse of the 20th century and he was so phenomenal that he was very much like a, this, this racehorse that was named Lexington of the 19th century and that he just drew, both of these horses drew crowds from all over and, and just made everyone who saw them just aware that they had really seen something phenomenal. And the more they were talking about this, this racehorse Lexington, who I had never heard of, um, I wanted to know more about him. And so I started looking to try to find something on Lexington and could not find anything. You know, I went to Wikipedia, there was half of a page on Wikipedia, about half a page on Lexington. And there was no book on Lexington. Certainly Geraldine Brooks's book was not on the radar at all. And uh, there was nothing out there on Lexington. And I started doing, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, just for my own amusement, more or less, just uh, getting interlibrary loans of some magazine articles that had talked about him here and there and, and started putting all that together. And then, I don't know, it just snowballed. And then the next thing you know, I'm going to Keeneland, like a lot. <laughs> and loving it here in Kentucky and then my husband is visiting with me and we're going on bourbon tours and going to <laughs> Windstar Farm and doing you know various things and and just falling in love with Kentucky and so we moved here you know about three years ago and decided to make it our home in Georgetown Good. and I mean by then pretty much the book was was already researched with just a few minor things that I still had to do but um, you know, it was at that point that I got the agent and then the publisher and started really putting it together. All right, everyone, uh, thanks very much for being here. Uh, let's uh, once again uh, thank Kim uh, Wickens for such a, uh, a wonderful uh, work. Uh, the books are for sale and uh, it's an extraordinary read and uh, it's going to be an important uh, book for uh, all, uh, not just uh, the horse industry, but for everyone. It's full of wonderful stories and we appreciate so much you spending the time Thank with you. us tonight. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.